0: Matthew 26 is where we are at this morning, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning to Matthew 26, I have something I've got to get off my chest. I've got to—I mean, it's church, right? We should confess. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, 2008, 2009, I was the graphics designer here, and my office was over there by the staff lounge. One day I came into the staff lounge, and— I buttered my toast before putting it in the toaster. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you have a toaster that can handle it, it actually produces the most golden, perfect, like, you know, like you get toast sometimes and like the butter doesn't melt right and it gets cold by the time you're done buttering it. Like this is like it pops up golden brown perfect, right? So I did that, but what I didn't realize was the butter dripped down to the bottom of the toaster and pooled in the bottom. And when poor Danny Williamson, who was the college pastor at the time, and he was actually my office mate, when he came to do his toast, the toaster caught on fire. And, you know, every, all the other staff members ran in the room. smoke alarm was going off, Tom Frazee ran in with like a ladder and he was trying to do something and everyone was yelling and they're like, Danny, what did you do? And I was in the corner like, yeah, Danny, what did you do? <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah, I I made a mistake. I let him take the blame. Danny, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. It's been 10 years, so hopefully you can forgive me. But um, it was a mistake. And... You know, if I was ever going to go try to get hired at another church, because I'm probably going to get fired now for, you know, confessing that I set the toaster on fire. Um, if, if I went to another church and tried to get hired in my interview, would it be wise for me to bring up the toaster fire as like the first thing? Like, hey, just so you know, at my last job, I lit a toaster on fire and blamed my coworker. So, kind of a catch. Um, <laughs> uh, no, that we wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. Why? Well, because as humans, we tend to maximize our failures and we minimize Our mistakes. And we see it all the time in politics and sports, celebrities, you know, people downplay their failures and they blow up their successes. And that's what makes the gospels so interesting because in the gospels, all over the story, you just see this brutal honesty. You see the disciples portrayed as just like losers a lot of the times. They make mistakes, they're always saying the wrong things, especially. Peter. I mean, you know, imagine Peter, you know, was it weird? You know, Peter was like the leader of the early church. Was it weird when he got up to preach? I mean, can you imagine if Peter came to our church and my dad was introducing him, Pastor Rob, and he's like, all right, so here's our guest speaker. He denied Jesus three times. He fell asleep when Jesus asked him to pray. He always seems to be saying the wrong thing. Please welcome up Peter. Like... (laughs) It's just, I mean, is that, a, is that a good strategy? The disciples are a part of this Jesus movement. They're trying to change the world with the gospel. They're authoring these books that tell the story, and yet they detail every failure that they went through. That's very strange. You don't see, I mean, they, they say that history is written by the victors. These guys won in the best way, but they still wrote down their failures. The reason is because these gospel writers were not trying to write some man-centered story trying to puff up their own greatness. They were actually totally honest how they were people, disciples, at the very peak of their failure, and yet the story was not about them and their greatness. It was about the one who never fails, which Jesus. And it's an amazing story. The the gospel is an amazing story. And right now we find ourselves in Matthew 26, which is just this this epic story within the story. It's one of the best chapters in the Bible, I think. And there's so many ways we could go through it. We could could honestly do a whole series on just this passage. Um, But we're just going to try to cover it today and and trust the Lord to speak to us. So let's pray and we'll get into it. And uh, let's, let's just ask the Lord to show up. Lord, we love you. God, I'm, I'm just a man up here. I, I can't do anything without your Spirit. God, I ask for a fresh filling of your Spirit right now that you would speak through me, that you would speak to us, to our hearts, through your Word. God, we need you, and we need to hear from you today. That's why we're here. Help us not to leave today without getting something from you. We, we love you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go pray over there. Where is Jesus right now? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a key place in Christian history. Kind of like Moses, or kind of like the Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem. It's this key place in the story. Uh, It's a garden grove covered with olive trees. And it's interesting because the story of the Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in the the garden. But right now we see it kind of reaching this crescendo point, this, this epic midpoint in a garden. Jesus has come to pray. What's going on in the story? Well, right now, uh, Jesus has just been anointed at Bethany. There was a woman who came in and she pulled out her hair and she she mopped Jesus's feet with this precious ointment. And it was this epic anointment for his burial. Um, Judas has betrayed Jesus. He snuck behind Jesus's back and turned him in for 30 pieces of silver. The last supper happened and Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, guys, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. Things are heating up. This is the end. And right now. Jesus is going with his habit of praying, going, and praying when times get tough. That was Jesus' fashion. When, when things got hard, he would often go into wilderness for, you know, days at a time, and he would pray. And he's bringing his inner circle, his guys. Who's in the circle? It's uh, verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, which is an interesting choice Because Peter's kind of proven himself to be unreliable. Look at verse 31. Just skip back. This is the last scene that just happened during when they were in in that upper room. Verse 31. Jesus said to them, All of you this night will be made to stumble because of me. For it is written, and then he quotes the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's saying, guys, I know you love me. But when times get tough, I know. I'm Jesus. I can see. I know you're going to leave me when times get tough. And then he continues to say, I'm going to die. But then he tells them that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 32. After I've been raised, I will go before you. And then Peter responds and says, Jesus, you know, even if all these other guys stumble, I mean, I'm not going to stumble because I'm Peter and I've got this together. He sounds like a politician or like a used car salesman, you know, all these other guys are going to let you down, but me, Jesus, I'm the real deal. Well, look at what Jesus says. He's like, Peter, listen to the truth. Verse 34, assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then Peter's like, I would rather die before denying you. And then all the other disciples are like, yeah, what Peter said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, do you see what's happening? The story is setting them up for failure. Uh, Peter's got this pride. It comes from a place of, like, best intentions. I love Jesus. I want to help Jesus. But his downfall is coming. And right now we find Jesus and the disciples in the middle of this extremely tense moment because everything in their world seems like it is falling apart. Look at verse 37. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here with me and pray with me. Now it says that he was sorrowful and deeply distressed. It would honestly be a really great disservice if we were just going to say, Oh, Jesus was sad. Sometimes we read through these passages and we just, go through, we just go through them so quick. We just read these verses and we're like, oh, yeah, he was sorrowful. Yeah, he was very, very sad. The words here are distressed and sorrowful in the Greek, in the original meanings of these words, distressed, brings up images of feeling fear, lack of courage, deeply troubled. Have you, have you ever felt like that? Or or sorrowful? Uh, You know, you have pain, you grieve, you're stressed out. Have you ever felt these feelings? This is, this is being troubled, stressed, agitated. Jesus knows that death is coming and it's troubling his soul. And what he's experiencing sounds like more the medical definition of a panic attack. A panic attack is the abrupt onset of intense fear or discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes and includes at least four of the following symptoms. Palpitations, pounding heart or accelerated heart, uh, sweating, trembling or shaking. That, That seems to be what Jesus is going through. Now, some of you guys might be objecting, to this kind of description, though, because you're like, that's not how I like to think of Jesus, a panic attack. I mean, we know today, our society, there's a lot of focus on anxiety and stress. It comes up in the media a lot, and so we tend to think of those things as very human and very earthy, and it's just like, our Lord would not have a panic attack. That's not the right terminology. You would not use that. He had more of like a holy sorrow, you know, and it was very dignified, and he was just there, grieved in his heart because of the sin of the world. No, listen, I mean, a panic attack, yes, it's something we don't want to consider as something Jesus would go through because we think of Jesus as strong. He's always in control. He's two steps ahead of the enemy. He's our rock. But consider this. Can I remind you that in the parallel Gospel of John, it gives us another window into this exact scene. And in the Gospel of John, it talks about Jesus sweating drops of blood being so overwhelmed with emotion and stress and agony that he is sweating drops of blood. There's a medical term for it, uh, hematidrosis. It's a condition in which the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands actually burst and rupture, causing blood to come out of the pores. It's It's been suggested that the only way this rare condition can happen is through acute fear and extreme stress would be what causes this blood set. Now, before I go further, I just want to explain something some of you guys here who are Bible scholars, you'll remember the Bible talks about fear being a sin. And we know Jesus didn't sin. I would remind you though, it's not the emotion of fear that is sinful, but it's giving in to the emotion and allowing you to keep yourself from doing anything that God has called you to do. That's where we stumble. But emotions are not sinful. And right now, Jesus is feeling the emotions. He's he's struggling with his humanity. He's struggling with everything, the weight of the world coming crashing down, and he's sweating drops of blood. And the best way we could describe this is honestly a panic attack. And it's so easy to miss the significance of the moment because all throughout the story of Jesus, we've seen calm Jesus, competent Jesus, powerful Jesus, righteous anger Jesus. We see a Jesus that never falls apart. But right now, that's what he's doing. He's stressed out. He's coming unglued. He's been unbreakable all throughout the story, and now he's breaking, and he's overwhelmed, and he looks to his closest friends and says, stay with me, stay with me, pray with me, be with me. That's got to be scary for the disciples. Because remember, he's the guy who's always had it together. He's the one who has always been in charge. He's been the one where during the worst storm of their life, when they're on a boat and they think they're going to die, they rush down to the deck and say, Jesus, help, and Jesus is asleep on a pillow, and they shake him, and they're like, Lord, wake up! And Jesus is like, what's wrong? Like, what? Like, there's a storm? Whatever. And he goes to the top of the deck, and he's like, peace, be still. And the storm's like, whoosh. And all of the people in the boat, all the disciples are like, who is this man? Who talks to the ocean and makes it stop? That's, he's always been in control. But in this moment, he doesn't seem to have it. And so for the disciples, that must have been a terrifying experience. So Jesus says in verse 38, He says, guys, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Like, I could die right now. My soul is troubled. It's easy to miss the significance of this because we don't like it. Jesus is our rock. We don't like to see him shaken. But the interesting thing is Jesus does what many of us do when we're stressed. He quotes scripture. He's so agitated and crushed that he doesn't even use his own words. He just quotes scripture. And what he's doing is, you might, some of you guys might have footnotes in your Bible that point you to Psalm 42. When Jesus says those words, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, he's paraphrasing Psalm 42. I'm going to read it. This is Psalm 42, verse 9 through 11. So the psalmist himself is going through his own trouble. And he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten about me? Why must I go about grieving, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taught me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? And then he says these words, Why, O oh my soul, are you so overwhelmed with sorrow? And other translations that will read, Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? But then he, he says these words, Why are you so disturbed in me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. There's an arc to this poem in the Psalms. The the poet, he starts out by saying, I'm afraid for my life. My enemies are against me. They're mocking me. And then he talks to himself and he says, my soul, why are you so cast down? Why are you coming unglued? And then he says, put your hope in God. He reminds himself about the hope found in God. And in this moment, Jesus is quoting this psalm. Jesus knows the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures. He's quoting Psalm 42 because he's reminding himself, put your hope in God. He is the one who can handle everything that you can possibly go through. But his struggle's not over. In verse 39, he went a little bit farther and he fell onto his face. This is not Jesus tripping. This is Jesus overwhelmed he falls down on his face and just cries out to the lord he says oh my father if it's not possible let this cup pass from me but nevertheless not as i will but as you will he's like father can this cup be taken can you take this cup away from me if not my will lord then your will be done where have we heard that phrase before your will be done where have we heard that that's the lord's prayer and we see it in Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's Jesus doing here? What is he showing us? Well, in this moment, he's stressed and he's, 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 he's frustrated and everything's going wrong. He's so overwhelmed and he, he quotes scripture. And when he finally uses his own words, he quotes himself. He goes back to the Lord's Prayer. And and the interesting thing I think we see about this prayer is when Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, I'm going to teach you how to pray, he wasn't giving them a lecture on how to pray. Jesus was actually sharing with them his own prayer language. This was the way that Jesus prayed. Obviously not, you know, the parts where, you know, forgive us our sins because Jesus never sinned, but the other parts of the prayer. Father in heaven, glory be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. All these things. This is the style in which Jesus prayed. It wasn't just a lecture. It was him showing us his method of how he talked to the Lord. How much more should we pray this way? To say, God, your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not be mine. This entire section gives us so much encouragement as we go through our own struggles. Because we see Jesus facing his fear and his problems, his emotions, and turning to God for strength. Is, is it news that Jesus is going to die? No, he's been talking about it for the last 15 pages. His friends don't get it. You know, Peter, you know, every time Jesus brings up his death, Peter's like, you'll never die, Lord, you'll live forever. And then Jesus is like, you're being satanic, Peter, get behind me. And... If if God said that to me, I don't. I'd probably go live in a van down by the river. Um, and I, yeah. Anyway, here's the thing: we forget that Jesus became a human. We forget the humanity of Jesus so often because we watch these movies. And what is Jesus? You know, he comes out. It's like you know, you're watching this movie and everybody is Middle Eastern, and then in walks Jesus, and he's white with blonde hair and blue eyes and like glorious golden gleaming teeth. And you're just like, what? And then he speaks with a British accent. He's like, Consider the lilies of the field. Look as they grow. Do not worry. You're just like, What? What?" Like, we, we think of, like, he's always very stoic and, like, it always looks like he's, like, looking beyond people, like, staring off into the distance. Like, that's the Jesus in movies, but I don't think that's the way Jesus really was. There was a human side of him that was so evident. He was God, yes, but everything that comes with humanity, Jesus had to go through. He got stomach aches, he got sick, he got headaches, he dealt with humanity, he dealt with emotions and and, and all of these things. And, and, and God, he becomes human. Yes, he becomes powerful. He's on mission. He's trying to save people. But he also deals with the human emotions of fear and a physical body that struggles and suffers. And now his human emotions are unraveling. And his will is strong, but his emotions are catching up to him. Think about that song, You Were the Word in the Beginning, One with God, the Lord Most High. Long before we even existed, Jesus and God and the Spirit, the Trinity, they got together and they said, this is the plan. Jesus, we're sending you. You're going to save people. And Jesus agreed because he had such great love. But now, even though he agreed to that long ago, in the moment, even though there's that agreement and that mission and that plan and this whole life on earth has been building up to this, in the moment, the weight of everything he's going through is on him and it's crushing. It's crushing him. Because Jesus knows he is going to rescue us by allowing himself to not be rescued. He's going to be put on a cross in a way where there will be no angels to swoop down and take him off. He will have to go through the whole thing. And he's praying, dad, I know you love me. You you said so at my baptism, but I've been telling people for a while that I have to die. And now I'm wondering, God, is there any other way? Father, can, can you and I just come up with like a third option? Can we just brainstorm and come up with a way? But then what does he say? He realizes there's no other way, and so he submits to God's will. He says, oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Now, he talks about the cup. What is the cup? You know, like, what is that? What does that mean? In the Old Testament, we see many different images that come up that talk about wrath and God's justice. One of the most common ones is something that's called the cup of wrath. Um, There's tons of different passages, the Psalms and Revelation and and different prophets. I'm going to read to you uh, Jeremiah verse 25. So this is God talking about the cup, the same cup that Jesus is dealing with. There's a link throughout all of scripture. In verse 15 of Jeremiah 25, the prophet Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and stumble and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So the Hebrew prophets have these metaphors for talking about God's wrath. One of the most common ones is the cup. So picture this big wine goblet. And it's just full of like the best, like top quality wine. It's just got the foam and it's got spices in it. And it's like, I know a lot of you guys here don't drink. And I know a lot of you guys have been saved out of alcoholism. And so you're kind of like, that does not sound good to me. I don't want to touch that stuff. But to the average person out in the world, think about it. Consider this. Does wine seem like that bad of a punishment? You know, like you've angered the Lord. Your punishment is drink this wine. You're just like, I should make God mad more often. Hey, it sounds good. No, no, listen, listen. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. The wine cup represents something that people want. It's something that people want But then God forces them to drink it down to the bottom. What happens when you drink the giant wine goblet? You become intoxicated. You start to lose yourself and you stumble outside and you fall down into your own ruin. Do you see what the cup represents? Our image of God's wrath a lot of times is more influenced by Greek mythology. You know, we think of God's wrath and we think Zeus throwing lightning bolts or fireballs. And yes, that does happen sometimes in the Bible. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. But more often than not, in in the Bible when it talks about God's wrath, the image that we see is the cup. And what it is, is it's this cup and people want it and God lets them have it. He lets them drink it and it destroys them. Like, think about it. Is the cup presented as a cup of poison? No, it's, it's something that people think of as attractive. It's not dangerous to them. They're like, oh, this looks good, just a few sips of this. But in the end, it overwhelms them, and it kills them, and it destroys their life. As, to bring the metaphor further, no one ever woke up and said one morning, you know, I'm going to be a drunk for the rest of my life. No, it was a lifetime of taking something and abusing it, And then going one step further, one step further, one step further, and before they know it, their whole life is consumed. That's the picture of sin we see with the cup. And it comes full circle when we see in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this. He says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions." Listen, God is never going to force you not to sin, but don't think you can escape the consequences of sin. It's like gravity. If you fall off the side of a building, gravity will make you face your consequences. This is the cup of human history and sin sitting before Jesus, and it's filled to the brim with evil desires and intentions. And we do this all the time. We face this cup. We say, oh, just a few sips. Just a little bit of sin, just a taste and before we know it, we're ruined. We think just, just a little bit of drugs, you know, just to take the edge off. But before you know it, you're depressed and now you're self-medicating and filling, filling yourself with things that don't help you. Substances abusing them and trying to make that hole in your heart okay, but instead you 're just ripping it bigger. pornography, we think, just a little bit, just I just need a little bit, and then everything will be okay. And the next thing we know, we've drank that cup down to the bottom, and the marriage is falling apart. We think just a little bit of gossip, just a little bit, you know, just they deserve it, or just a little bit of lying. But before we know it, we 've drank in that cup down, and now friendships are falling apart. God gives people over to their choices. I just taught through the book of Judges, prime example. Israel constantly is rejecting God. And when they they reject God, what he does is he doesn't throw lightning bolts at them. He doesn't throw fireballs at them. He gives them what they want. He removes his hand of protection and allows their sin to catch up to them. They say, we want to worship idols. And he's like, okay, if that's what you want. And now they're worshiping idols from the Philistines, but guess what? It doesn't just come with idol worship. Now the Philistines have moved in and now they've taken over and now they're in bondage. It's a beautiful metaphor for sin. You need to understand this. So many of us are just worried, you know, oh, God's gonna punish me. God's gonna come after me. The worst thing that God could do to you is give you what you want. The worst thing that God could do to you is allow you to have that sin that you want in your life. We worry about being saved from hell, but we need to also worry about being saved from ourselves, our sin. So you've got this cup that's just filled with wickedness. Ever since Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, all the, it's just, it's, it's the history of sin and it's brimming Into the world that seems attractive, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, sex, drugs, and some money. Yeah, bring it on. That's what I want. Wealth, power, all this stuff. That's why, you know, I have so many kids that come through my youth group. I've been doing this for 12 years in youth ministry. And I see so many kids just, you know, they're in these Christian homes and they graduate and they get out and they're like, oh, man, I just want a taste of the world, just a sip because I've been repressed. And my parents and my pastors and my teachers have been holding me back. And I just, I just like, I mean, the world seems, you know, like there's something there, you know? And they just, I'm not talking about like going out and getting a tattoo, you know? I'm not talking about like, you know, hanging out with friends who aren't Christians. I'm talking about like, give me a taste of what the world has to offer. I want to disobey God because I think that I know better instead of him. I see so many young people doing this. Just give me a sip of that cup of the world. Jesus knows the destruction found in that cup he knows that it's poison, it's death, and it's sitting right in front of him. And now he has to drink it. Because as Israel's king, it's his calling to drink this cup so that other people don't have to. If that sounds abstract, it's just an example of the upside-down kingdom. We've been talking about this. Jesus is a part of something where he says, I'm the king, there's a kingdom, but it's different. It's upside-down. Remember Jesus' crazy teachings? You know, He says to the Jews during time of Roman occupation— okay? Their country has been overthrown by an oppressive terrorist government. And he says, okay, a Roman soldier comes to you and says, hey, Jew, carry my armor for a mile. You're a member of the upside-down kingdom, so you know what you do? You carry it for two miles. And when the Roman soldier's mind is blown, and he's like, why did you do that? You're like, hey, Roman soldier, can I pray for you? Do you have any prayer requests? Because, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when the Roman's like, you're insane, and slaps you in the face, you're like, whoa, it looks like you're really struggling today. You've got some anger, you know. What Here's the other cheek if you want. That's insane. Like Jesus's teachings are crazy, but they're true. And and they are so upside down that even today as Christians in church we hear them we go that's that's strange. Victor Marks, um, the coolest guy to ever have my old job, the junior high pastor job. He's like this ex-military, just insane, awesome. He's like in the Middle East, like saving women and children from ISIS. Just follow him on social media. The stuff he does is incredible. And um, he posted this uh, picture of him getting to meet with one of the ISIS chiefs. Local governments in the area had captured this ISIS chief, and he's in this prison cell. And Victor is meeting with him, and Victor is telling him the gospel showing him Jesus's love and trying to win him to the Lord before he faces justice. And Victor posts this picture of him talking to this guy and the caption says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then after a week, Victor posts the caption again and the picture again. He's like, you know, it's interesting because this post out of all the things we've ever posted on this section of Facebook and Instagram has received the least amount of likes and like upvotes from christians and he was like why is that and the reason is because victor's least popular post is motivated by jesus's least popular command love your enemies we don't like that we don't want to but it's what he said and it's what he did this is the role of the king of the upside down kingdom and he teaches it to the subjects and and think about the king and the kingdom you know like think about pharaoh In the Old Testament, Pharaoh is the king and he feasts. You know, he has all these feasts with, you know, awesome food and awesome wine and all this stuff. And who does he have with him? It's the cupbearer. And what's the cupbearer's job? The cupbearer is responsible for drinking the poison if if there is poison. You know, he's supposed to take that cup and drink it before the king so that if his enemies tried to poison him, then the cupbearer dies and the king's like, oh, time to get a new cupbearer. Ding, bring in the next one. Like, bring me some different wine that's not poison. That's, That's what a king does. But in the upside down kingdom, what does our king do? He says, you know what? I'm going to drink that poison. I'm going to be your king and your cupbearer. I'm going to drink that cup so that you don't have to. Jesus is the king who drinks the poison so that his enemies don't have to. That's insane. That's the gospel. It's amazing. It's good news. Jesus is so compelling. He's preparing to drink this cup for his enemies. And Jesus knows that Israel will reject him. He knows that they're going to do their own thing. He knows that they're not going to keep the law. And so he has to do this because he knows that we, humanity, will sin. There is no way that we can earn our salvation. There is nothing we can do. We will continue to mess up. And so he sees this cup and he knows he has to drink it. And it's his darkest moment. But in his darkest moment, he is able to say, it's not about me or my life. It's about God's plan. And he submits because he loves. And think about the agony. Think about just what he's going through. And the disciples are no help. They're, they're falling asleep. He comes out, verse 40. He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, can't you just watch with me for one hour? Can't you just watch and pray? You're going to enter into temptation. The, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I, I realized when studying this, there's, there's an insight to this line I never saw. Because Peter, Jesus is saying this to Peter because Peter is giving into his own flesh and weakness. But Jesus knows himself how true this is because he has a spirit that's more willing than anyone. And yet his flesh is weak. And please miss, don't misunderstand me. Jesus did not have a sin nature. That's not what I'm talking about when I say flesh. I'm talking about his humanity. He is dealing with his own weakness in this moment, this, this struggle and this this these feelings and all of these things, he's dealing with the humanity. But here's the amazing thing, the encouraging thing. Peter struggled with his flesh. He struggled with the weakness, and he gave in. He failed. Jesus, we know the end of the story, he did not fail. He struggled through this night. He battled through the struggle and the stress and the sweating blood. He went through all of it. And you know what that made happen? The cross and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And now, because Jesus battled through this dark night of the soul, now... Peter is able to, months later, stand up in front of a group of thousands of people and preach a sermon where 3,000 people get saved. Peter, who once was a coward and denied Jesus, is able now to do these amazing things and face his own struggles and come out strong, not because of his own strength, but because of Jesus in him. Verse 42, Jesus prays again. A second time, he went and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. His prayer is different now. It's it's resolute. He's ready to move forward. He's like, it's unavoidable. I accept it. He's taking control of his emotions and his calling, and he's accepting. Yes, I am called to be the king of the upside-down kingdom and die for my enemies. I'm doing this. Verse 43. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were very heavy. It's the weakness of the flesh. Jesus overcomes it. They can't because they're still just human. And I'm sure he was frustrated in that moment, but listen, I also think that he looked at this sin because yes, it was a sin. They let him down. They made a mistake. That's what a sin is. They let down the Lord. I'm sure he looked at this sin and he knew this is just one more sin that I'm paying for on the cross. This moment right now, I'm going to the cross for this, for them, because I love them. Jesus was dedicated to win the war against sin and love was his motivation. My question for you is, have you thought and considered recently? Because these are stories that we hear so many times, and it just goes one ear and out the other. Yeah, Jesus, gospel cross. I hear it all the time, you know, Easter. Listen, do we realize that Jesus made such a huge sacrifice by coming to humanity and becoming one of us? By doing so, listen, he didn't just identify himself with our humanity. Jesus identified himself with our sin. And if you're like, Aaron, what are you talking about? Jesus never sinned. Listen, he didn't sin, but he allowed himself to be seen as a sinner. I never thought about this until just this last week. Think about it. If you're somebody in Israel and you're walking and you see someone hanging on a cross, are you going to think, oh, they're probably innocent? No, you're going to think, oh, they did something terrible. They're a sinner. Look, they got what they deserve. When you turn on the news and you see someone, you know, getting thrown in jail, is your immediate response like, oh, I bet they're innocent? No, you're like, justice is served. Jesus allowed himself to be seen as somebody who was sinning. Jesus allowed himself to be identified with our sin. Do you know what they said about Jesus when he was a child? When he was just this little, young, innocent, impressionable little kid in Israel. They said, Jesus, you're the product of a mother who sleeps around with other men. We know Joseph isn't your dad. We, Jesus, you're a mistake. Jesus, you weren't supposed to be here. You're a product of sin, Jesus. That's, in an, you have to understand the culture of Israel, is, it was an honor-shame culture. You can bet that Jesus was shamed as a young kid for something he did not do, something that was a lie. As a young child, he was identified with sin. And as he grew older, he lived this perfect life, that didn't stop people from spreading rumors about him. They said he's a liar, he hated God. He's trying to take the place of God because he calls himself the Son of God, which is true. But to many people, they just looked at Jesus and they're like, what a, what a sinner, what a, what a horrible person, what a creep. Did you know that the pastors of Jesus' day said the only reason he has the power to do miracles is because he's satanic. That's what they said. They're like, he has the power of demons on his side. Can you imagine walking into church and having the pastor point and say, they're demonic? They've got a demon. like They have the power of Satan. Like, and everyone turns and looks at you. Just imagine that. That's the, the soul-crushing shame that Jesus walked around with every day. I wonder how many nights Jesus wept from the pain. The pain of coming to save people because you love them and instead watching them spit in your face, cast you out, reject you. How horrible would it be if you came into the living room one day and your whole family was like, we hate you, we never want to see you again, get out. That's what Jesus faced. The people he loved saying, we wish you were dead. I think Many nights Jesus was probably not able to sleep because of all the emotion and pain wrapped up inside of him. For any of you here struggling with fear or anxiety or pain or sadness, we need to know that Jesus himself was called a man of constant sorrow. And he allowed himself to become human and go through all the emotional struggles that you and I go through because he loved us enough to do it. When Jesus hung on that cross, they put a sign above his head that said, Here lies the King of the Jews. That wasn't a compliment. It was an insult. It was basically a sign saying, this guy's a liar. He's a sinner. He called himself the king of the Jews. That's not true. Imagine walking around with this sign hanging around your neck with your worst sin on it. The one you're the most ashamed of. Walking around and having that displayed to everybody. Or even worse, not your sins, but the sin, the worst sins of people around you. And now you're taking the blame for them. That's what Jesus went through for us. Jesus showed us that he was not some God, some distant God who didn't understand. He was a God who cares. And people need to hear that. When I was in Limerick, meeting with those Irish kids, you know what they said to me? They, They said, you know, before talking to you and your wife and this other pastor, we'd never met a Christian in our life who was kind. We had never in our town met a Christian who treated us like we were human beings. Everyone that we've ever met who said they were a Christian, a church, a religious person just said, you stinking kids, you're going to hell, you're going to burn. That's, that's all they had ever heard. So that was their idea of Jesus. Jesus hates me and I'm going to hell and I'm going to burn. There's nothing I can do. No one had ever told them the gospel. No one had ever told them there was a way to be saved and a God who loves you. It just breaks my heart. There's people all around you who are guilty of their sin and they wouldn't say it. You know, people people don't say that a lot of the times that people try to act, they put on a front. But in reality, everyone who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't been freed, they're walking around with the weight of everything they've ever done in their life, and it wears people down. And what happens is people think you know, if, if people knew how much I was a sinner, if people could see inside my heart and see all the wickedness, they wouldn't understand. They would hate me. They would reject me. And Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out, I understand. That's why I did this for you. I understand what sin is doing to you. I understand how sin has broken you. I understand so much that I came and put myself in your place so that you could understand how loved you really are. God understands your sin more than you even do yourself, because he's seen every sin you've ever committed, even in the future, and he still went to that cross for you. That's good news. I'm gonna invite the band back up. We're gonna enter into a time of worship in a minute, just as I finish. I wanna point you to the third prayer as we close, the last verse, look at verse 44. It's really simple. So he left them, he goes, they're asleep, they failed him, and he leaves, he goes away, and he prays again the third time, and he says the same words. This is Jesus' dark night of the soul. It's the worst moment of his life. He's a broken man. And it's so profound. Because there's the Jesus that gives his life. The Jesus that conquers sin. The Jesus that comes in the Holy Spirit and gives power. And then there's this Jesus. Jesus feeling the emotion of fear. Jesus confused. Jesus in pain. Many of you have been here before. You've been here before. You've walked this road. Maybe some of you are walking this road right now. You need to understand that the unbelievable power of this story is that Jesus joins us, humanity, in our dark night of the soul. When your world is unraveling and you think no one cares or is listening and all your friends are asleep, help me, help me, pray for me, and your friends just, they're not there for you. Jesus is there. And he walked this path before you were even born. He knows what it feels like. So how can we be more like Jesus in our dark hours? In the moments where God feels distant, Look for God's presence through what feels like his absence. Let me say that again. Look for God's presence through what feels like his absence. Think of this moment in Gethsemane. Jesus, he's crying and praying in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. He knows he's going to be crucified. He's, I'm so overwhelmed, I could just die. And then he says twice, Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And he feels God's absence. Evil is about to crush him. And exactly in the moment where Jesus feels most forsaken is the moment where God is meeting us. In our need, he's there. He's been through it. His death on the cross made a path for doubters to, fe- to meet the one that they doubt for anxious, for the anxious to meet the one who can give them peace, for the fearful to find the one that can make them brave again. In the moment Jesus feels God had forsaken him, it was the moment that God himself became God-forsaken with us in order to conquer our God-forsakenness with his love. And in that moment when Jesus felt hung on the cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? The reality was God was there. But in his humanity under the weight of the crushing sin, Jesus could not feel God's presence. That does not mean that God was not there. And in your darkest moment, when you feel, God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm right here. Just like I was with my son, I'm with you. In the garden, Jesus fought through his humanity and surrendered his will to God and he put his trust in the Father. Jesus is where we have to bring our doubt because you will doubt. You're going to struggle. But when you do, kneel beside him in the garden and remember, I was not here first. Jesus was here before me. I'm a small human. I've got problems in my life. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with it. The, the world is really messed up. I'm really messed up. And I don't even understand what's going on inside of me. But I know that Jesus understands and he cares And he loves me. And when you're at your lowest point, this is just something the Lord's taught me recently. When you're at your lowest point and you're going through those struggles and you're on your knees, whether literally or just spiritually, emotionally, you're on your knees and you feel like no one's there, just think of Jesus. Realize he's with you and think of him. I give you permission to imagine him kneeling like he did in the garden not towering over you saying, get it together. No, kneeling next to you, holding your hand, saying, I've been here. I've walked this road. Before you even existed, I knew what this was like. I know all the emotions you're going through. I know all the struggles you're going through. And I'm going to get you through this. I love you. I tied for you went through more pain than you could ever know. It was because you're worth it. I love you. The story of the Bible, there's so many failures. Adam fails, Eve fails, Noah fails, Israel fails, Peter fails, we fail. But the story is not about us. It's about the one who never fails and us turning to him the one who fought through that dark night of the soul so he could give us his spirit to help us fight through our dark night of the soul. We're gonna end with communion. The ushers are gonna start bringing communion forward just as we sing these last couple songs. And some of you right now in your life, you're drinking from that cup of wrath. You're allowing sin into your life. You're making compromises You're doing things you know God doesn't want you to do. And you're thinking, I just need a few sips of this cup, just a few sips to make me happy. And the Lord's saying, no, I already drank that cup so that you don't have to. You don't have to drink that cup anymore. Stop rooting through the trash for it. I've got something better for you. You see, Jesus takes the old cup and he replaces it with this new cup. And we symbolize it through communion, but it represents something bigger it's the cup of Jesus' blood, the cup of his love, his forgiveness. Jesus takes all the nastiness and everything we struggle through, and he says, let me take that off your hands. I, I already drank that cup. You don't have to drink that. Drink this new cup. And it, that's why we do communion. Another, it's, a, it's a ritual thing that we get so used to. When you see those cups, you know, the bread and the wine, the juice... When you see those things, you need to understand what they represent. It's this new covenant that Jesus is bringing you into. It's this representation of forgiveness for your sins and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is something that we receive when we're saved, but we constantly need new fillings of it. You know? Your body's 60% or 70% water scientifically. Does that mean you should never drink again? No god is calling you to receive a filling of his spirit today so as the men come with the cups i want you to we're going to do communion on our own i'm not going to lead you this is just between you and the lord but when you get those communion cups i want you to look at that that red liquid that represents his blood and i want you to think of your sins i know it's hard but we need to face our own darkness. Think of your sins. Think of your struggles. Think of your fears, your doubts, your discouragements, your weights. And in that moment, as you take that drink, just say, Lord, I surrender these things to you. I cast all my cares on you because you care for me. And I want to receive in exchange for this old cup. I want to exchange it and get this new filling. As you see that that bread, think about his body that was broken for you and give thanks and receive the filling of the Spirit. I just want to end with this quote from Keith Green, a musician from the 70s and 80s. Brilliant guy. And some of you guys might resonate with this song. I just want to read the lyrics. He says, My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, but I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your love. Lord, we love you. We give this moment to you. It's a holy moment. It's a sacred moment. This is not just routine. This is not just religion 101. This is a moment we come to exchange our sin, for the filling of the Spirit. Every week we make mistakes, we're failures, but you never fail. Jesus, I pray for anyone here who's struggling, they're, they're giving themselves right now to sin. They're, they're living in a way where they're just continuing to drink from that old cup, getting filled up with what feels good, but it, it intoxicates them and, and leads them down that dark path. Help them, God, to exchange that cup of wickedness and sin and whatever comes with it today. Help them to trade that in for what you have for them. Help them to say like Jesus said, your will be done, not my will, your will. Help us today to submit to you. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.